0: Bienvenides to Merendiando, part of Radio Luna Theater. Our guest today is Mariló Núñez.
1: Mariló Núñez is a Chilean-Canadian director and playwright based in Hamilton, Ontario. She was the founding artistic director of Alameda Theatre Company, a company dedicated to developing the new work of Latinx Canadian playwrights. Marilo is the 2018 recipient of the Hamilton Arts Award for Established Theatre Artist, among many other scholarships and accolades. She's currently obtaining
0: her PhD in Theater and Performance Studies from York
1: University and she is a current playwright in residence at Aluna Theater. In this interview, we talked about Latinx identity in North America, the Fornes writing method, and her insights on developing a playwriting practice.
0: Mariló is also the writer of our next studio series presentation, El Retorno, a play that explores family, exile, and revolution, and journeys into the heart of Latin American history. This studio series presentation is directed by Aluna's artistic director, Beatriz Pisano. Bea recently directed another radio play by Argentinian playwright, Griselda Gambaro, called The Walls, where one of Argentina's most fearless writers holds a mirror to state terrorism that still echoes today. You can listen to it right now as part of Salt Peppers Theater's company Around the World in 80 Plays program. Link is in the show notes. Now, Let's jump into our conversation with Marilo.
1: Thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. Um, We have been thinking about interviewing you for a long time because we've had the pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with you this year in some playwriting workshops, and you are currently Aluna's playwright-in-residence, which is amazing. And we're going to roll back the tape a little bit, go a few years behind us, and uh, ask you about Alameda Theatre Company. So you founded and created this company. And Alameda Theatre was one of Canada's only theatre companies dedicated to developing the new work of Latinx Canadian playwrights. So it seems like developing new work has been important to you for a very long time. So why was this uh, so important to you when you started Alameda? Uh,
2: Well, I started Alameda because of um, what had happened with the Refugee Hotel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could get into that, but people can read about what happened. Mm Uh, so it was anger that kind of spurred me to start the company. And, and then I realized that the only way for Latinx artists in Canada to kind of get to the same level as everybody else was to, uh, be the kind of creators of our own stories and be in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, because I, I, I love playwriting and I love writing. It, I I really wanted a company that I would have loved to have had be around when I was young. Yeah. <laughs> so I created a company that would um, give opportunities to Latinx artists, both as like as writers, directors, actors, designers. I wanted a company that would place us in the center, mm-hmm. center stage. Um, and so I I got the help of uh, my good friends, Stephen Colella and Erica Capito. They helped me to develop the first uh, Playwrights Festival, De Colores. Uh, and so we started De Colores in 2008, I think, 2008. Uh, and we started with two plays. Uh, and the first play was um, Blue Box by Carmen Aguirre and a uh, play by... Oh my god his name escapes me right now
0: was it lizard boy lizard boy
2: Gomez? yes 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 thank wow. <laughs> you <Yes. laughs> uh, thank you thank you for that um yeah so we started with those two and what was amazing was uh i had no idea about running a festival um but these two dramaturgs worked one-on-one with the playwrights and uh, at the end of the, of, the, of the year, so we gave each playwright a year of development mm. uh, with one-on-one sessions with the, the dramaturgs, um, we, we opened it to the public to hear the work in progress. They were never finished plays. They were always works in progress. And from the first year, we had like 50 people show up. I don't know how, <laughs> 50 people showed up and a lot of people were from our community, the, the Latino community. And um, it was amazing because we got a lot of feedback saying, wow, I'd never been to a play reading before. This was so interesting. It's like it's like being read a story and you're creating the images in your head. And it's such a beautiful kind of way to connect with the playwright and the actors. So I hired actors to do the reading and uh, yeah, it was great. And so we had a De Colores festival every year until I closed the company in 2014.
1: That's so much new work. <laughs> That's so yeah. Fun. We
2: developed the work of over four, we developed over 40 plays.
1: Wow.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah, it was really wow. good. It was really good. And you know, when I closed down the company, I had to close it down for personal reasons and, yeah. uh, I was just burnt out. I couldn't do it alone anymore. Um, I felt the lack of that help in our community. And and so did Aluna. Like Bea called me and said, We feel the loss of that company because it was such an important part of the development of new work.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, like young playwrights would like people who had never written a play before came to me saying, I, I want help, I need you to help me. And so, you know, it was a learning curve, and we every year we had to kind of teach playwrights how to write plays and some were established plays, playwrights. Um and so they, they also got the benefit of being in community, being with, you know, having the actors from the community. It was really beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and having a culturally specific theater company as well feels like its own challenge, even just beyond developing new work. What was interesting was um,
2: that a lot of the, the Latino community in Canada is quite new, a lot of new immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had never been to the theater in their own countries so they were like why would i go to the theater here <laughs> where you know it's probably in english and and so we were thinking like aluna as well we were thinking okay we need to start doing the two languages maybe um but i did convince people to come you know people who had never been to the theater in their home countries and they were blown away by the experience they were like wow this is really amazing the other there there were so many elements right there was like trying to fundraise within our community uh, was really hard, right? Like um, our community is so new and so young so it doesn't have a lot of deep pockets or or people with a lot of wealth that could become donors. But what I did do was start campaigns that would be like $25, $5. And so I got a lot of donations for a little bit of money Mm So that was interesting because the people felt invested in the community and in the company and so i did get donations which was great um yeah yeah yeah. challenges challenges of running any theater company but when it's specific to a culture uh there are there are things that you have to navigate and things that you have to learn along the way like i learned so much i didn't know so many things when i started it and then by the end of it i was like Okay, now I'm starting to understand my community a little bit more. Mm. Uh, Our community is made up of so many different countries, right? So the Chileans were different than the Colombians, than the Venezuelans, than the Mexicans. Like it was very, very different.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: So I had to learn to navigate the different needs. Yeah,
0: I was reading also some of the names that did like the the writer, the show that you develop. And it's like from Marta Chavez, which is like, a comedian superstar. And yes, then I yeah. know Isaac, Isaac Louis from Improv. Yes. But then you have like Rosa Laborde, which is like an amazing playwright. Carlos Belis, like Juan Carlos Beliso is like, yeah. now if you see people, I'm like, you were all in the same festival, but I most of us know you from like
2: yeah. really
0: different pockets of art in the yeah, city. Yeah, so yeah. that's like really amazing. Yeah.
1: Um, at the time that you were running this this company, who were your inspirations at the time? like did you have any other kind of artists that you were really looking to um internationally or anywhere that were inspiring you?
2: Yeah, I have to say uh you know intar in new york um their playwrights festival that they had, that was run by Maria Irene Fornes, was Mm -hmm. uh, even when I started the company, I knew about this company and I knew what they were doing. And I eventually, like in the years, two years prior to me closing down the company, I was already applying for grants to be able to create kind of like a Fornesian Ah, uh, model Mm -hmm. here. but I didn't, you know, was so funny is that I didn't feel confident enough then to be the one to run the, the workshop. So I was looking at people who I could hire to come in and do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And now, uh, you know, so many years later, I'm like, no, no, you know, I have the, I have the uh, experience to be able to run these things. So, so, yeah, so even back then I was thinking about Fornez. Uh, a lot of the American Latinx playwrights inspired me a lot because they're you know they're like 50 years ahead of us right Right. so their body of work is so huge and um they're really really talking about what it means to be latino in north america yeah whereas i feel that the canadians still don't know where we're at in terms of our writing and, and how we're exploring theater as latinx theater artists i still feel we're a little bit like on the on the kind of emerging side of that, of that long line of playwrights. Right. Like I think, um, yeah. So I looked at people like Nilo Cruz, Migdalia Cruz, uh, Cherry Moraga, uh, Caridad Svich, um, uh, Luis Alfaro, like all of these big, big playwrights in the U S really inspired me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the landscape, the theater landscape in the U.S. And, and here is very different. And the amount of Latinx people in the States also is just completely different. So that's definitely a question I also ask often being like, what is the Canadian Latin American identity? Like, what, what do we have to say that's specific to us in our, our experience?
2: And I think the group that we had when, when I ran the first Fornez workshop with Aluna, I think that's where we're starting to like explore that, right? Like um, the stuff you guys did was amazing. And so, and it really showed like the variety of ideas, the uh, diversity of ideas and the and the things that you're all thinking about, right? Like right now at this moment, this is what you're all thinking about. And that's that's important. What did you learn about new play development
0: during your time at Alameda?
2: that it's an ongoing process that, uh, you you know, like some people start with nothing, with no knowledge of what a play is or how to write a play. And some people have, you know, years of experience, but the journey of writing a play uh, still takes you from one place to the, like by the end of the journey, you will have something, (laughs) but it's never finished, right? Like a play is never finished until it goes into production and it gets a staged production, but even then, it's still not finished. And so, as playwrights, we're constantly having to navigate and negotiate that, right? Like, at, at some point, you have to like go and say, "Okay, I, I'm not going to continue writing this play anymore." I'm that gonna move sounds on to very the
1: next hard. <laughs> that <laughs> it sounds- is hard.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's yeah. That's what I learned is that uh, for each playwright, the journey is unique. And so as a, as a new play developer, or as a dramaturg, or as a director, you have to, you know, gear towards each person specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's so unique. Everybody is so, uh, talented in their own way, right? Like my daughter, Emma, the other day, she made this beautiful painting and then a uh, beautiful painting. And then she showed me her friend's painting and said, why is mine not as good as hers? And I said, you can't actually compare the two. One is an orange, and one is an apple. You can't <laughs> at all compare. Yeah. Everybody is so unique.
1: Yeah. Ugh, that's very brave and humbling to at the same time to hear. Like it's brave to try to pursue that, and then it's also just like, you, I feel like you constantly have to check your own anxiety and fear to let the art come through. Totally. So, um, after closing Alameda, what happened? Uh, it's
2: interesting. Uh, I went through a a period of mourning, obviously it was very hard to close that company. And, uh, so I was trying to figure out, so what do I do next? Like I, my identity was so linked to Alameda. Uh, and I was like, how, how am I going to reinvent myself and, uh, be the artist that I've always wanted to be. And so, you know, looking through old journals from 15 years ago, I saw an entry that said, I really, really want to do my MFA in creative writing. And so I was like, why don't I just do that? You know, like go back to school, do what I've always wanted to do, which is write, give myself the permission because when I was running Alameda, I couldn't be an artist. Mm -hmm. I had to be an administrator. Mm -hmm. I had to be the person in charge, running things, producing things. And so I felt like I was, you know giving great opportunities to other people but in the back of my head was the, but what about my artist what about me uh and so i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give myself that and so uh i applied for school i got in uh to the university of guelph's uh, mfa creative writing program and it was the best two years that i could have given myself because it was two years dedicated to just writing i wrote six plays in two years. I also wrote short stories. I wrote um, like some po- poems and so many things. And and I learned so much about how to be a writer, that it takes dedication and you have to do it every day. Uh, and that every writer has a different approach to writing. Uh, and the conversations around writing and, and books and you know, It was so beautiful, I, I, I loved my two years at, at, at Guelph. And then during that time is when I also started thinking, okay, I can't completely get rid of the person I was through Alameda. I can't completely get rid of that need to help the community, to be part of the community, to continue to develop new work. So how can I do this? So I called Bea and I was like, Bea, you know, how can how can we work together so that we continue some form of new play development? You know, I, I've i been working with, uh, you know, artists in the States doing the Fornes method. And I really feel that I wanna bring that here. I wanna bring that to Canada. Uh, in 2018, I went to Chicago. I did the two week uh, Latino playwrights um, workshop, which was, life-changing. There was something so beautiful about being in a room with 14 other Latinx writers from, you know, different, also different kind of experiences, different places in, in North America, uh, and writing from, from that, you you understand that because you were both part of the Fornes workshop. So writing from community, writing from that place of, you know, this beautiful, special space, right? Uh, And so that's, that's, I became really passionate about trying to bring that here to Canada, because I still believe that that's one of the best ways forward is to give the writing power to the writer, to the writer can change everything, right? The writer can change a reality Mm. through their work. And so I believe that giving that power to our community as writers Will help us to move forward.
1: I'm so grateful you did <laughs> because those workshops <laughs> changed my relationship to writing too. Like, suddenly it felt like something that was coming from me, my whole self, and not like uh, a story, a, a good story I had to tell. Like, it was so authentic. It felt really authentic mm. to write.
0: I love because I felt the, the different that Camila. I felt like I always told my truth and now I was able to change it. <laughs>
2: Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: So that really, I, 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 that really talks about what you were saying is like, as, as writers, that we have different tools is like, it's always so personal, the choices you make as a writer, like with all the knowledge you might gather, it's always a process is always going to be different from, for each writer, which I think it's, it's something that I I have learned during the four method, seeing other people also react to the prompts, Like we all get the same prompt, but everybody reacts differently. It's always like, totally. okay, 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 (laughs) (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. totally, totally, totally. So for you, Marilo, when you're writing now, what are some elements of a successful writing session for you? Like what, what do you need to help you have a good session and (laughs) what makes a successful writing session? Music yeah uh, uh,
2: it's it's such a big part of my process um like when i know that i have to finish a piece i first put on a playlist and i i will move around in my in my room here yeah physically getting warmed up and physically i you know meditation also helps as well um and then just uh when 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 it's just so, you're so in it and you're so free and you're not thinking about anything else but the story, uh, that's that's the magic for me, is when you're just so in it and you, and you don't want to stop. That's the magic.
0: And what's on your writing playlist right now?
2: Uh, so I'm writing Foxy right now, uh, which is my new play. And it's set in the 90s uh, so when I was a teenager. Um and so a lot of the music that is on my playlist is like 90s hip hop, a lot of uh, cheesy <laughs> 80s uh, love power ballads. <laughs> uh, and then a lot of like um uh, salsa from the 70s and 80s.
1: Okay, that that sounds like a very powerful playlist, right? Now. Many decades. <laughs> many decades yeah 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 (laughs) awesome do you have any advice for someone who's beginning to write a new play what would you say
2: get a good playlist. it's such a scare it's a it's a it's yeah get a good playlist (laughs) yeah music music is an excellent way in right like uh choose songs that really really move you that really inspire you that really make you want to to kind of express yourself um writing a new play is such a scary thing. And when you don't know how to do it, you feel overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So I say reach out to people uh, in the community that you know could help you. Like when I first started, um, I reached out to Nightwood with theater. I applied to their Groundswell Festival. And I learned so much in that first year of writing a play. yeah. And, and, and like aligning yourself with, uh, you know, somebody that you trust, somebody that you can be messy with, that you can be emotional with, that you can like be shitty writing with, you know, like, yeah. you have to allow yourself to be a bad writer in order to become a better writer. That's the, the biggest lesson I've learned is that the first drafts are going to be bad right the first drafts and you have to allow yourself to write a really bad first draft um yeah i completely
1: believe that those are great tips those are great and and not isolating yourself exactly finding that group that's something i've learned with you too through the Fortness workshops like you can uh, it's so much easier when you have other people to be like ah i'm terrified with versus just being terrified in your own on your yeah. own desk by yourself <laughs> Yeah, because writing is such a
2: solitary thing
1: uh,
2: that knowing that you have people who, who will have your back is so makes you feel less lonely, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's
0: no better feeling when you write something that you know it makes no sense and you're reading it out loud and the other person is like, no. And you're like, got it, <laughs> I knew it, but I needed to say it.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Totally
0: because you have studied uh, different methodologies and, and styles. How do you choose which tools to use and when, when you're developing a new a new play?
2: Uh, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, as a dramaturg, when I work with new playwrights who don't know how to write plays, it's hard for me to start in on the Fornés method right away uh, because the Fornés method, it's very random at first and you're like, well, I don't understand This process. I don't understand where this is taking me. I'm writing things that I didn't even think I'd be writing. Uh, And so if you have like a specific thing that you want to write about, um, there is something to the, you know, the Aristotelian and the very Canadian theater way of writing plays, which is to create um, kind of like an event like the events of your, the biggest events of your story. Mm -hmm. Like say you wanna write about, you know, the day your parents got a divorce and how that affected you and the events that happened after, the repercussions of that. So you could write the specifics about that day that your parents got a divorce, just in like freehand and say, you know, I woke up and I knew something was gonna, like just really kind of allow your imagination to go and to, to, to be open to that. So doing the events helps because it helps you to see the story on a larger scale. But when you're working with Fornes, a lot of the stories that come to you are not pre-planned. So then what you start to recognize is the characters that keep coming back in your writing. And then you add the structure. Hmm. That's when you start to build the, the kind of, okay, so these three people keep coming up in my in my scenes. What am I gonna do now? So then you can start the events and you can start creating your own event and letting your imagination go with that, right? The, the Fornes method is not about structure at first. It's about um, allowing your the characters who live within you to come out. Like a new writer will always want to write a play because they have a very specific idea they have a very specific thing that they want to write about Mm
1: -hmm.
2: whereas more more established writers uh they do have specific things that they want to write about but they can benefit from the Fornes method in that it allows them to explore right the Fornes method is a lot about exploring what's in you what what are possibilities that you can write about whereas pre-planning so, like, it's two forms of, of writing, and uh, everybody is unique, and everybody should try both things, right? Like, I think uh, you shouldn't just get stuck in one way. I think you should be open to, uh, you know, creating an outline. Sometimes some writers really benefit from creating an outline, whereas other writers just begin by writing the first line and then seeing what happens. And I say, be open to whatever you feel you need um and explore explore right
1: speaking of exploring and forne's method and sense memory and all these things next week (laughs) an audio version of your play el retorno is being released and uh, el retorno is based uh, from your own family's journey and some lived experiences that you have been able to draw from so did you use forne's techniques to create this piece
2: No, not at all.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh,
2: I know, I know. Uh, And I wonder what kind of play it would have been if I had used Fornes techniques. Mm. Uh, No, this play I wrote way before I started working in the Fornes method. Um, So how I approached this play uh, was because it was like my my second biggest play that I had written that I was going to write. I really wanted to explore um, verbatim, verbatim theater. And so I interviewed my dad for two years. So I started writing this play in 2015. And we would meet once a week or once every two weeks. And I would just press record and we would just talk. And I would ask him questions. I would, you know, say, okay, so let's talk about Bulgaria. Or let's talk about, you know, when you got arrested in Chile. Or let's talk about, you know, when you got married to mom. Stuff like that. And so that would lead to like these very long and we'd have once, we'd have tea with, you know, bread and and we'd be, you know, we'd both be crying or we'd both be laughing. Uh, It was a very beautiful time with my dad. Uh, And so after I was, I felt like I had enough um, stuff. I then transcribed all of these, I wrote them all out in Spanish, and then I had to translate them into English. And then I had to put the play together, trying to see which, where each, so it was like a puzzle. I was trying to put a puzzle together. And my first draft of the play was verbatim. It was exactly what my father had said. It was a daughter and a father sitting at a table talking.
1: Hmm.
2: And I thought, oh my God, is that gonna bore, (laughs) is that gonna bore people like, but what was interesting is that I was part of the Tarragon Playwrights Unit at that time. And the writers in that room it was a law, a lot of dialogue. It was a law of play, and I kept asking that question: "Is like, do you, are you bored?" Like, and they're like, "No, it's like listening to a conversation. It's like being a fly on the wall of this, of this father and daughter." But then, you know, as I development developed it more, I realized, okay, I need to, I need to put some structure into this thing. I need to uh, invent some things in order to make this play work. Mm. Uh, and so, I had to create a lot of things that didn't actually happen Mm -hmm. in order to create an arc for the characters, in order to create a story that would take us from a beginning to an end. But there's a part of me that wishes that I had had the Fornes method to see what would have come.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that's always a dance when it's a real story. Like how, where is the craft and the, the artistry invention and then where is the truth that like punches you which is the reason you want to tell that story and how do you navigate all of that so yeah Yeah, good for you because the the finished play (laughs) is beautiful and i'm really excited for everyone to hear it but the more that i hear it i'm like i want a full movie of this like i would love to see it
2: (laughs) you know after i wrote the play and and i staged it and i thought it was done i thought that was it that you know i was that that was it uh and so i decided that i was going to write the novel of the story like to create the novel yes and so i'm still thinking about that um Mm -hmm. i've written a few chapters here and there uh and again i've i've had to invent a lot because in order to make the story make sense for the reader there's things that i have to fill in that i was not there for that you know Mm -hmm. so it's it's an interesting process
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and then to do the radio version was a completely different experience as well let's talk about
0: that (laughs) how was (laughs) that process of adapting this play from stage to audio
2: (laughs) it's interesting because in the stage version there i i really wanted a lot of movement and puppetry and uh like visuals that you can't see on the radio like you can't at all and so in the play version there were moments when the kids were playing but it was like shadow puppetry in the background. Uh, While there was like, you know, complicated movement sequences that were choreographed by Olga Barrios. (laughs) And the idea with those pieces, those like movement pieces was to tell the story of Latin America through a child's perspective.
0: Mm.
2: So, you know, colonization, then the when there were the the revolutions that happened all over Latin America trying to break from the monarchy. And then there was the, the dictatorships that started to happen. And then, you know, so I wanted to tell that story, then eventually to get to the very specific Chilean dictatorship, but told through the eyes of children and in movement and puppetry. So then I was like, okay, how do I tell that on the radio? And that's when uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll just, make them talk out the, the the playing. Like they'll be saying, okay, we could do this and then we can do that. Because I remember as a kid, when we would be preparing to play house or preparing to, we had to kind of set the rules. Yep. We had to say, okay, so that, that's gonna be because it was all in our imagination and nothing was real. We had to kind of mm-hmm. build the, the world around us before we could play. Mm-hmm. So that's what I decided to do for the audio version. It sounds really good. And everybody
0: who's listening um, after this interview, if you're like, I want to know, you just need to wait one more week and you will know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're going to get the play in English and in Spanish. So that's also very cool. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So you got your master's in creative writing, and now you're at York University getting your PhD. So you keep just diving in to the learning. <laughs> um, can you tell us more about what your research focus is? So,
2: after I did my MFA, um, I really did not want to return to being an administrator in the theater world. <laughs> I was like, I, I really do not want to do that. So, I have to, um, I feel like I have to train myself more in order to be able to get a job that I, that I would love. And so, and also the advocacy part of me was still very, very strong. Uh, you know, when I started Alameda, it was all about advocacy and creating opportunities and fighting the system and all of that. And so I thought, okay, how can I do that with a PhD? How can I do that? And so I applied with the, uh, my research topic was race and racism in Canadian theater. And, you know, I'm in my second year now, and I realized that that's such a big, big topic that I could not possibly Write a dissertation paper on that big of a topic. I wanted to tackle the institutions. I wanted to tackle casting. I wanted to tackle, you know, what it what the impact on the actor who's a person of color and and what that does to them when they are working in the professional world as theater artists. Like all of that, I wanted to tackle. But then I did this course um, last summer, and it was an independent study where I could create my own pro my own course i could do whatever i wanted and so i thought okay well why don't i get somebody to teach me how to do the Fornes method and uh so i did so i i i called up the my friend in chicago and i said she's a professor at northwestern university and she and i said can you teach me can i be your student and i can help you as your assistant whatever you need can you teach me how to do this can we like meet weekly to talk about Fornez? And she said, absolutely. So we spent two months meeting weekly and I read every book that there is on Fornez. I studied the method, like she, she would like break it down and we studied the method. And then I realized that I really want to look at the issue of race from the writer's perspective. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to write race? Like what is universality? in literature and in in theater and plays in North America. What does that mean? Because, you know, when you go to school, you're taught, you're you're reading books and and they're all from a white point of view. Most of the books that I read when I was in elementary school were from a white point of view. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean when a writer of color starts to write about their specific place? Why is that not universal? Why is that not considered universal yet right so looking at race through the writer's lens hmm. and then incorporating the Fornes method as a method of fighting the you know this the system like right now we are taught how to write plays in a very western European way and even though Fornes was also trained in a very western European way she kind of broke the system and she and she was like, I, "I have no idea how to write a play, so I'm gonna invent it." And so she took things from the Western Canon and from the Western European mindset, but then created this completely new way of writing and uh, and it's all about community. And And to me, the way to solve the race issue is about community. And so how do we as writers, connect to that community and connect to that place within us that allows us to write our truth, allows us to write the stories that are not being told, and allows us to to be at the same level as everybody else, so that universal becomes a different thing.
1: Mm. Yes, yes, I'm very <laughs> excited for you. I can't wait to even ask you about it in a year when you've done more research and stuff on it, because this is This is powerful. (laughs) That's really powerful.
0: Everything you're saying, i just take a minute because I'm like, I'm thinking about it being like, "Hmm, yes, how did I learn to write a play? How did I write a play? Why did I write a play?
2: Exactly. (laughs) These are the questions I think that are important. What's that saying that the pen is the most powerful tool for change or, Mm -hmm. or something like that? Like, I think the writer has so much power to change realities, to change, like, writing is revolutionary. And so if we're going to change the conversation about race and racism in North America, because I feel that it's a very North American topic. If you go to Latin America, they're like, I, what are you talking about? We don't have, we, we're not talking about race in Latin America. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. racism. There should be conversations about race, but there isn't. Yeah. They just, they just do the work. And, and a lot of it is based in a Western ideology as well. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm looking at North America and I'm looking at people of color and I'm looking at indigenous writers and I'm looking at specifically the Latinx community. How do we create our work and why do we create it in this way? And what does it mean to write about from our perspective and what does it mean for a writer from another culture to write about me, for example, to write about a Latinx care? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Because look, when I'm, you know, I wrote a play called Inquest, where none of the characters are Latinx at all, uh, but they could be in casting, you could do, make them Latinx or from all different cultures. But I was like, okay, how do I enter the story that is not about specifically the Latinx experience? The caseworker in the case uh, of, the, of the story that I was writing was actually Chilean the more research I did. She was Chilean and I was like, okay, that's my way in, but she's not my main character. So how do I write characters that are white or indigenous, or do I have the right to write them or not? Like, So these are questions that are very, very, very relevant right yeah, now. Yeah, totally. And, but we should also be given the freedom. Like you, you know that when you're writing in the Fornes method, you can't, you, you can't actually control what your characters are saying or who they are.
1: Yeah. So it's very,
2: very interesting to me. Yeah,
1: that's so interesting because it's like, how do you trust your imagination, but then also put it in the public eye, which is like one of the powers of theater. Like everyone's just going to see it and have their own different reactions to it. and And all of that, all of that has, feeds back into the idea of race, too. Because like you said, writers shape so many things, our realities. Totally. So yeah, how do you be responsible with that? But also free, also an artist. Free. Yeah. Free, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Woof, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about creating
0: new realities, another project you're working on right now is Foxy Tales of an Urban Sorra," And we want to <laughs> know what have you learned about uh, from this from this piece about your, what is your place in the world as a, as a Latina?
1: Because from the description of the show that we read, uh, you're working a lot with stereotypes, like about female, Latinx, Latina women. And those are, I think we're all really familiar with them. So yeah, what have you learned about your own place in the world as a Latina? That's a tough question. Um, So writing the play, uh,
2: I've really tried to explore uh, the different aspects of of a Latina woman. And so uh, there are five female characters. Uh, So one of them is, for example, the Latina lover, kind of very sexual, very sensual, very, she's supposed to be very beautiful. And, you know, what you see in in Hollywood films Mm -hmm. of the very voluptuous, beautiful. Uh, And so then there's the mother, there's the virgin, there's the daughter, and then there's the chola gangster kind of... (laughs) revolutionary yeah and what's funny is that a lot of these stereotypes are not from my specific culture from chile yeah they're from like a mexican reality or uh, a north american latinx reality Mm -hmm. right uh and so but this is what i've been fed and i think this is what all of us have been fed the movies that we watch about our community about latinos have these stereotypes and so you kind of you kind of in they become ingrained in you, and you kind of relate to them because they're kind of like you, and it's the only thing that you see. So I'm I'm kind of exploring the broad Latina stereotype, not specifically Chilean, not specifically Mexican, kind of like a mix of all of the things. Mm-hmm. So I'm also exploring the Quinceanera, which is, uh, you know, very important coming of age celebration in many Latin American countries. Uh, and then I'm also exploring La Girona, the the myth of La Girona and the and the kind of overprotective mother uh, that we all <laughs> we all have come in contact with, you know, like I think our mother's, you know at least my mother, and a lot of this play is based on my mother. You know, the overprotective, the the very jealous, the very intense Latina woman. Mm. But then I'm also adding in my own personal story as well. So the story of um, when I was in my teens and the trauma that I experienced and how that has kind of shaped who I am right now. So, yeah, so there's a mix as well. Um, And so what have I learned about myself? (sighs) I'm still in the process of learning Yeah. uh, because, yeah, because now, you know, now I'm a mother. And so how do I and, and I and I sometimes feel myself becoming that stereotypical Latina mother. Uh, and then other times I'm not and I try to to be the more kind of North American <laughs> <laughs> uh, helicopter kind of parent. I, I have to say I'm still learning. I'm that's still great. learning.
1: Yeah, that's great. But even just the distinction of uh, that you made that these stereotypes are North like a North American view on the latinx people that are here i think that's a huge kind of light bulb uh, in in that exploration because yeah it's uh not universal again it's like you're kind of finding the roots of where these ideas come from yeah totally
0: i had a um a casting for for selling tortillas like a commercial <laughs> and then literally the description was we're looking for an authentic accent and an authentic, like, Latina, Latina woman. Think Sofia Vergara. There you go. There you go. That was what reminds me is, like, most of the casting descriptions when they look, mostly in, in commercial settings for TV and stuff like yeah. that, are super specific to, yeah, North American view of what a, a Latina woman.
2: Yeah, like... I think about movies like from the 90s that really kind of affected me because mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing any movies about my experience as a kid. So you have movies like Blood In, Blood Out, mm-hmm. American Me, um, and they're Los Angeles-based, right? The L.A. kind of Vato and all of that. and the And the women in those movies, I was always so intrigued by them. They were like these gangster you know tough girls but they were so beautiful and there was a tenderness to them and then there was a really hard side like yeah i love i love that and i was like i i relate to that because there's a part of me that is that right yeah like i believe in every stereotype there is a a grain of truth
1: right but when you put that person in uh, southern ontario for like 30 years what happens to that person (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) yeah yeah like when i was 15 15 16 around the time where i'm basing this play i was part of a group of chilean girls and we would go clubbing every weekend even though we weren't allowed to um and it was it, there was the feeling of a little bit of a gang like mm-hmm. there were the chilean guys that hung out with us and we were like a group of chilean girls and then sometimes a. uh, uh You know somebody else would come into the group for a bit but there was always this collective of us and we smoked and we wore the you know the the clothes that was so cool (laughs) (laughs) and we and we would watch these movies and we'd be like yeah that's us you know like Mm -hmm. we're we're like these
1: cool latina girls (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like you have to do a lot of um like you have to work your brain to to see that and be like it's me because obviously there's lots of similarities but it's like we're not in la but we're gonna make that here like i i need to bring that reality to me because i that's i want to feel seen because there was nothing
2: else there was no
1: other reality
2: for us at that time yeah yeah uh and and it you know being part of that little group kind of made you special yeah you felt special you felt part of something uh that was just like ours. You know, uh, when I would walk down the street, like the, the hallway of my high school, I felt kind of cool because I was like, I'm, I'm kind of claiming my, my roots and, and
1: even though they're not, they're not my roots, but <laughs> it was, yeah, it's a very weird, weird thing. Yeah. It's so fascinating. It's you against the world, basically, because the world around you yeah. is not affirming yeah. <laughs> that part. Of you. Yeah. Every episode, we ask our current guest to pose a question to the next guest so we can keep the conversation going across borders and languages. And you are being asked two questions by our guests from the last episode, which are the hosts of the Nostalgique podcast. So Nostalgique podcast is about like the reminiscing about the pop stars of yesterday. And I feel like this is actually a really good pairing (laughs) Because your vision of pop culture and your appreciation of it, I think this is going to be great. So Abba and Ben are the hosts. And Abba has one question for you, which is, Marilo, what is your ideal Sunday?
2: Yeah, my ideal Sunday is um, being allowed to sleep in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And then going down to the kitchen and making pancakes for my family. And so we share pancakes Uh, and then going for a hike with my daughters, my husband and my dog, Mm. and then just having a very lazy like, I don't have to do any work. I don't have to turn on my computer, just having a lazy day, hanging out with my, my children and my husband.
0: Mm. That sounds very ideal. And our second question is from Ben and Ben was thinking about celebrities and fame and and how many comedians dreams is to make it big in like the States and he wanted to know how do you create art free of ego beyond the idea of success?
2: This is a question, it, it is a big one. And I think I, I've, I've asked myself, because when I was younger and I wanted to be an actor, my dream was to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to get an Oscar or I wanted to be recognized with awards, recognized in that way. And as I've gotten older, uh, I've realized that it is important to be recognized by your community to to have people say, yes, you're good enough to to be winning this award because your work is good enough. But at the end of the day, it's it's about uh, staying power. you know like I, I believe that the people who stay not because of the awards and not because of the accolades and not because of recognition, but stay because of the work, because the work is what you love more than anything. I think that's the most important thing. And so doing it because you you can't do anything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know the e- the ego is is you know we all have it. We all we all you know want to be recognized for our work. But like I said, the the story I was saying about my daughter earlier. Mm-hmm. You can't compare yourself to anybody else. There's nobody else in the world like you. So there is no uh there's no reason for you to say, "Well, why did they get it and I didn't?" It has nothing to do with you. It's just luck or or whatever. So you just have to have faith that your work is valid and that it will if you if you stick with it, it will it will go out into the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Combining the like self affirming with doing that uh, long enough to stick it out, <laughs> I think, is the key. Yeah, yeah. Because the more you do something, the better you get at it.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: And now we'll ask you to ask a question to a fellow artist in the <laughs> Americas. And what would that question be?
2: What is your favorite word, Ooh. and why? Okay, writer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was looking at. I was looking at. I, I used to watch The Actor Studio. Oh yeah, uh, you know that. that. And so at the end, he would always ask
1: mm-hmm.
2: these questions to the person being interviewed, and uh, and I, I thought, oh, I, those are such fun questions. So I chose one of those. Yes, I love that. What's your favorite word and why?
1: <laughs> so as you know, this podcast is called Merendiando, which means snack time in North Mexican Spanish very specific. We're getting more specific <laughs> as we go. We're learning. So Marilo, what is your favorite snack right now? It could be a dish or food or music or a book, anything that's actually just fueling you and that you want to share with our listeners. A snack for the soul.
2: Okay. So when COVID hit, uh, my husband and I, you know, everybody goes through, went through a depression and oh my God, we're stuck in the house. And, and there's a thing that happens in the east coast of canada when there's huge blizzards there's uh there's a saying we need to go and get the COVID chips
1: uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. yes <laughs> so we got a lot of COVID chips during the first months of of the of the pandemic so chips i really like a good chip
1: okay i love Crunchy that chip. um do you have any particular <laughs> brand or flavor that's yes played? um at costco they sell a
2: himalayan salt can't remember the name of the chip it's a white bag and it says himalayan salt yeah and what i love about them is that they're really thick and crunchy yeah yeah they're not flimsy they're like a really thick crunchy and salty chip
1: right so when you bite into one you really have to it just takes your whole focus it takes your whole <laughs> but if you eat them enough you can forget <laughs> what's going on yeah all right thank you so much Marilo thank you so much for sharing some of your brain and your thoughts with us today thank you so much we are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Egan known to some as Lake Ontario in Toronto or Dagarondo this is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee or Longhouse Confederacy the Anishinaabek Nation the Wendat and the Mississaugas of the Credit this land is covered by the Dish With One Spoon wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. Araluna. We
0: remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial.
1: Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalf Foundation.
0: Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shelness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz-Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or
2: like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.